0: Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by...
1: Karen Koch tusman
0: Senior Editor. Paul
2: Bonanos, Associate Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor.
0: On this week's pod, Janet Woodcock's legacy, Biden's build back better, and drug pricing, new funds from Bain and Fraser, and our monthly look at what's new in translational news in our What's on Tap in the Distillery segment. And of course, we'll have our weekly peek at our Emerging Company Profile series. This week, we look at Moon Lake and Walden. Uh, The names kind of oddly, oddly fit. But first, let me tell you about our eighth annual China Summit. It's scheduled for November 16th to 19th. If you can't attend in person in Shanghai you can attend via our digital platform. One area I'd like to highlight is our presenting company class of 2021. It features more than 50 biotechs from China, the rest of Asia and the West, handpicked by the BioCentury editorial team. This includes our first ever China R&D day with public companies taking a deeper dive into their pipelines, It also includes many hot biotechs you've read about in BioCentury, including the last two to go public. Lian Bio, which just got out on NASDAQ, and Abisko, which went out on the Hong Kong Exchange a couple of weeks ago. Please visit our website, biocenturychinasummit.com to register, see the full agenda, and list of presenting companies We hope to see you there either in person or virtually. Let's get right to Washington. Steve, why did you profile Janet Woodcock now? And what did you conclude?
2: So it seemed like a good time to assess Janet Woodcock's career. It looks like Rob Califf's going to be nominated as permanent commissioner. If that happens, Dr. Woodcock could remain as acting commissioner until he's confirmed. And I don't think it's likely that she's going to remain at FDA much longer after that. I did speak with Janet Woodcock for the story. She's the acting commissioner now. She didn't discuss her plans, but she did say a lot of interesting things. I think that a lot of people's views about Janet Woodcock are colored by two events, the recent approval of Adjahelm for Alzheimer's and the approval in 2016 of Sarepta's Exondus 51 for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I wanted to make sure that people understand that there's a lot more to her career and to the things that she's done besides those two decisions. She's been at FDA for 35 years. And I started the story by painting a picture of what drug regulation was like in 1986 when she joined FDA. The agency at that time had very little interaction with drug developers. It was common for companies to meet once with FDA, get a kind of vague sense of what it would require for approval of a drug, go off and spend years doing two phase three trials, submit the data to FDA, and only then find out that they'd guessed wrong about what FDA would require or that reviewers had changed their minds, and they had to go back to the drawing board and spend years doing new trials. The patients who were in those initial trials, in a sense, wasted their time and, and maybe their lives, and the patients who needed those drugs had to wait years longer than they should have to get the drugs. At that time, it was almost impossible to develop a drug for a very rare condition because FDA had very rigid standards about what it would require and it wasn't possible to meet those requirements when studying a very rare condition. Manufacturing technologies were stuck in the 1960s, and toxicology was based on even older science. Janet Woodcock played a big role in changing all of that. That's what I talked about in the story.
0: Well, Steve, our our listeners are here for the controversy. That's all well and good. Just kidding there. Uh, Tell us about the controversial decisions that she made, the two that you brought up, and, and how you covered those.
2: So I want to take a step back and say some, some of the other things that she did, which played into, I think, those controversial decisions and some other things. She made sure that FDA reviewers communicated with drug developers, but she was also a leader in bringing patient perspectives into regulatory decisions. She made it impossible, tried to make it impossible for reviewers to ignore the hopes and fears of patients when they're making decisions about approving drugs. And she also made sure that they had to consider the harm that was caused by failing to approve a drug that could help patients, as well as the potential harm that could happen if a drug is harmful or not beneficial gets onto the market. When I got to the controversies part of the story, there are kind of external and internal criticisms. Several members of Congress have assailed her for failing to head off the opioid abuse epidemic. And what I said in the story is that, look, in the clear light of retrospection, it's easy to say that Cedar, which she was directing, could and should have done more. It's not so clear what to do in the moment, I think. And I think the problem was twofold. First, FDA was slow to recognize the problem. And second, when FDA did recognize it, there was a failure of imagination. FDA, including Woodcock, we're approving opioids based on reading the law at face value. These drugs were safe and effective when used as indicated on a label. They were slow to see how they could take the social consequences of use outside the label into account and apply that to opioid regulation as is done today. About Serapta and Advil, I think that those decisions were really consistent with Woodcock's desire to put patient interests first. Her willingness to stretch the law and regulations to fit what she thinks is best for patients. And I think that a a lot of people inside FDA and outside FDA would say that she went too far with both of those decisions and that she strayed too far from objective evidence and wasn't sufficiently deferential to precedent or respectful of opinions that she didn't share. The thing that was really interesting was when I asked her why she pushed so hard to get Sarepta's drug approved and whether she thought that it actually has benefited anyone, the first thing that she said, she said, oh, well, I heard from one of the mothers of a boy who's taking that drug this morning, and she thinks that they're benefiting from it. And then she, she added, she said, well, that's not scientific data. That's just anecdote. But what I found really interesting is that she's in touch on a frequent basis with the parents of the kids who are taking that drug. I think that's extraordinary. I don't think there are very many government regulators who stay in that kind of close touch with the people who are affected by the decisions that they make five years after they've made a decision. And again, some people would say that she was too close to those families and that the decision that she made was colored by her emotions or her desire to to please those families rather than by science. I think that's an argument that people have to look at the data and make their own decision about. But I think that the insight that I got in in speaking with her is the fact that the decision was prompted by this empathy that she has for these families and this deep connection that she made with them.
1: Steve, one of the things that came up in your story was her critical path report. And that's a term now that I've heard, you know, there's the critical path institute, Biocentries written about the critical path over the years. Can you talk a bit about what that is and the ground she paved by doing that?
2: Yeah, so that was a report that she wrote. There was a stint for a few years when she was working in the office of the commissioner. I think she was deputy commissioner for something. I don't remember. Maybe for medical policy or something. And she was working in the commissioner's office for Mark McClellan, who was the commissioner at the time. There was a slowdown in drug approvals. And Mark McClellan asked her to do a deep dive and figure out why the number of drugs that were being submitted to FDA was slowing down, why the cost of drug development was increasing, why efficiency was going down. And she did that, and she came out with this report. One of her main conclusions was that there was a gap in the science, what she called applied science. Basic research was moving forward really rapidly, research that people call translational research, was also advancing, but there was this gap of of research into the mechanisms that regulators use to assess drugs. And that gap was creating a bottleneck and preventing things from moving forward. And in that report, she advocated intensified research on biomarkers and on processes for qualifying or validating biomarkers. She pointed out problems in manufacturing and said that there needed to be a much better approach from regulators that would give companies the incentives and the confidence to continuously improve their manufacturing technologies. And she also pointed out problems in the clinical trial infrastructure and um, suggested ways that those things could be advanced. Mark McClellan told me that that report was really an inflection point in the whole history of drug development. And Margaret Hamburg, Peggy Hamburg, who was also FDA commissioner, told me that that report influenced her, that her whole tenure as FDA commissioner, she centered on the idea of improving regulatory science. And she said she got the idea from that and was inspired to do that by reading this report, the Critical Path Report.
0: It's quite a legacy, Steve. You brought up her relationship with the DMD community. Right now, I'm working on a story about the ALS patient community, so I would be remiss In not asking you, ALS patients have got to wonder, you know, we saw what happened with DMD, we saw what happened with
2: Alzheimer's, what about us? I I know that they are asking that. I think that it's difficult to say. I think that, I think a lot of it hinges on what you think of those decisions about DMD, about Sarepta's drugs, and about Adjuhelm. You know, there are people who would argue that neither of those drugs were effective Ellis Unger, who used to be a senior official at FDA when he was at FDA, called Serepta's drug a scientifically elegant placebo. On the other hand, FDA's approval of those drugs seems to have opened the floodgates for investment in drug development in those areas. And ironically, even if neither of those drugs works, it may be that those approvals in the big picture have done more good than harm if they've convinced investors that these are areas. That are worth investing in, and that FDA will approve drugs for those areas. There are also arguments from others, including CEOs of biopharma companies, that those decisions really were setbacks for both of those fields because they're diverting enormous amounts of resources into things that haven't been proven to work and that ultimately may not work at all. So if the ALS community looks at it, they can interpret it in different ways. I think that the ability to leverage whatever work has been done in in ALS, and to get effective drugs onto the market is going to depend on the strength of the endpoints in the clinical trials, their ability to find biomarkers that are effective, and I think also, like in DMD, their ability to persuade regulators and companies to find ways to get people onto trials who have advanced beyond the earliest stages of the disease.
0: That's a good point, Steve. Let's turn to the quadruple B, Biden's Build Back Better. Couldn't help but notice no word on drug pricing in the framework. Does that mean it's out of the picture,
2: Steve? Probably not. And I have to qualify with with a probably because nobody knows for sure what's going to be in it, even the people who are working on it. And nobody knows for sure whether it's going to get over the finish line. The smart thinking in Washington right now is that Some drug pricing provisions are going to get into the bill. They're probably going to look a little bit more like legislation that Representative Peters introduced than the H.R. 3 model that Nancy Pelosi and Frank Pallone and others in the Democratic Party have proposed. But I think that we'll have a much better idea of it by the end of the week.
0: Excellent. Thanks for that, Steve. Let's turn to translational news. Karen has joined us for her monthly segment. What's on tap in the distillery? Karen, what's got you excited
1: this month? Well, as you know, the distillery is biocentury's look at new targets for diseases and also new technologies going after known targets. And we comb the literature around 40 top translational journals looking for translationally relevant Research that shows a disease modifying effect. We round up some of our top priority ones and summarize them in these kind of 100 to 200 word blurbs that really get at the translational heart of each paper, what it could potentially mean for drug development. And we serve that up once a month to our readership. And if you're looking for our distillery section on our brand new website, you can go to the articles tab under analysis. And then within that, there's the distillery tab of the different feeds. And that's where you can find it right now. But diving into some of the research that I thought was pretty exciting, two things stood out at me for the fact that they took some activity or some genes that are kind of buried deep in the genome, some sort of cryptic functions, and brought those forward as new translational avenues. So what do I mean by that? One was actually a cell paper from Rockefeller University researchers and also researchers at University of Utah School of Medicine. And they were looking at a, an endosomal transport protein CHMP3, chimp 3 that's found in mice and monkeys. And they showed that if you could take variants of that endosomal protein to modulate viral endosomal uptake, you could actually treat HIV, Ebola, and other viruses in different animal models. It was just interesting to see this gene from mice and monkey genomes kind of come forward as a potential translational approach to infectious diseases. And the other version of that was for cancer. So this was out of a group at Ben-Gurion University of the Negative in Israel. And they found what's called an upstream open reading frame or a UORF. So this is a part of the gene that's not, uh, I guess, part of the traditional coding sequence that we think of in the exon. But this UORF encoded a peptide that inhibited PKC eta, so a member of the protein kinase C family. That peptide, when marisolated so it could go into cell, across the cell membrane, was effective at treating breast cancer models. It's something where, in both cases, you've got things in the genome bringing forth new translational avenues.
0: Excellent. Well, you, ORF, CHIMP3, you always get to say the coolest stuff, Karen quick question for you on this. Are the papers that you're highlighting, is is the IP licensed already to companies or not yet licensed? How do you highlight that in in the pieces?
1: Sure. So we always highlight what we know about the patent and licensing status. We actually do reach out to the authors to get information on that as well as their next steps. Sometimes they reply, sometimes they don't. Also in the papers themselves, there'll often be information about whether there's a patent on the technology, for example. And I believe in the case of both of those papers, as of now, patent and licensing status were unavailable. But in other cases, by scanning the bottom of the distillery article, we've got some data around the experimental systems used, the publication details, the contact info for the researchers, and and the licensing and patent status to the extent that we know about it.
0: All right, thanks for that, KTT. I'd like to bring in Paul now to talk about two longstanding firms, both of which closed new funds last week. They're looking to deploy the funds in different ways. We have Bain Capital and Frazier Healthcare Partners. Paul, let's start with Bain and what they'll be doing.
3: Sure. Bain has closed uh, Bain Capital Life Sciences. That's a new fund, uh, a $1.9 billion vehicle. It's Bain's third fund dedicated strictly to life sciences, and it's bigger than the previous two put together. The prior funds were 700 million and 1.1 billion. So what will they be doing? Really sticking with their usual strategy. It's a, a later stage fund that will invest in developing biotechs and it'll branch into early commercial opportunities as well. They say they've got four buckets. This came out of a conversation my colleague Steven Hansen had with Andrew Hack at Bain. So the four buckets, There's one they call inflection, which is getting products through the proof of concept phase, growth, which is for early commercial expansion rounds. There's one bucket they call fallen angels, kind of bounce back situations for biotechs that have been through some kind of setback. And then a bucket they call larger private equity and new company creation. And those will be usually bigger deals for them. Like I said, my colleague spoke with someone there. Andrew Hack said to Stephen, The firm feels that the late-stage strategy will allow Bain to find worthwhile opportunities kind of regardless of fluctuations in the market, whether biotech is hot at any given time or or has fallen out of favor. So that's some flexibility in how they'll invest
0: while keeping the firm somewhat insulated from ups and downs. Paul, uh, tell me about their first investment. That dropped last week, didn't it? Yeah, it sure
3: did just a couple of days after I think Bain uh, revealed the the closing of the fund. So their first deal is a big one. It's for a company called Cardurian, which was spun out of Takeda a few years ago, 2017, and Bain is co-leading a $300 million round. They've got a lead program, it's a PDE9 inhibitor for heart failure. It's headed into a large phase 2 trial and that's a very big indication. Contrasting that, their second program targeting CAMK2 for rare arrhythmias, that's in a genetically defined population, so much smaller.
0: All right. So that's Bain. What's Fraser planning to do with its new fund?
3: So that's a long-only evergreen fund dedicated to public investing, and it's an $830 million pool, the Fraser Life Sciences Public Fund. To be clear, it's not an entirely new area for Frazier. We usually think of them as a venture firm, although they also have a growth equity fund on the side as well, the other side of the firm. But uh, they have done public investing before from their life sciences fund. They typically deploy a fairly small percentage of those funds for that purpose. So I, I spoke with Jamie Brush and Albert Cha from the firm. The impression I had coming away was, as biotechs are going public earlier in their lifespans, Sometimes during the preclinical stage, even we've seen some very big deals. Fraser feels that the VC skill set, doing due diligence and looking at early milestones, preclinical to clinical translation, all of that is also applicable to a certain set of public biotechs, just like it is for private VC backed ones. So their existing skill set is now sort of stretching increasingly into the public markets. And they're responding to that by seizing the opportunity to create a, a discrete public fund. So they're looking to build a portfolio, probably 30 or 40 public biotechs. Like I say, it's evergreen. So some will, some will be divested or, or exit and other ones will be added. They'll build it over the next couple of years. It's worth mentioning they're typically a more product-focused firm. Although Albert Cha did mention they will do some platform investing too.
0: Paul, how's their track record been?
3: Well, so like I say, none of this is unprecedented. They've been doing this for about five years. They have had some nice exits so far. Looking at the list, some of them are companies in which Fraser built a position and then exited the M and A, but some are more opportunistic, investing at one price and then just selling at a higher one later on, after some inflection point or some such thing. They did flag two this year that resulted in billion-dollar exits. They're not the first, but you know, fairly recently, the mRNA company Translate Bio was acquired by Sanofi and uh, the CD47-focused company Trillium. Pfizer was the buyer there. Yeah, they're, they're building on some results and giving their LPs a chance to allocate some funds in a new way. Some other early stage funds have gone later, getting into crossover investing or something. And this is kind of a different flavor. This is how Fraser is thinking about expanding its reach.
0: Super. Thanks, Paul. Sure. Both stories are up on our website. Uh, available for subscribers, or you can sign up for a trial if you want to read Paul's story or Stephen's story on Bain. Now we have a few minutes left. I'd like to turn to our emerging company profile spotlight, which we do every week. We have two new profiles up on our website. One focuses on Walden Biosciences. This company made its debut last month with a $50 million round. I was led by Arch and UCB Ventures. The company aims to test its theory that targeting podocytes, I hope I said that correctly, Karen, or you're nodding. Okay, you'll you'll give it to me. Um, They're hoping that the podocytes can make diseased kidney tissue healthy again. The CEO is Blaine McKee, 15 year veteran of Genzyme, Also spent some time at Shire. Walden's founding science stems from labs at Rush, Mass General, and Harvard Medical School. And Karen wrote our other profile. It focused on Moonlake. Karen, you want
1: to give us a quick take there? Sure. So Moonlake is an interesting company. They're actually in line for a SPAC that's expected to close possibly end of this year or early next year. They are developing this asset that traces its origins back to ablinks of the nanobodies, which was of course acquired by Snofi. The AbLynx asset targets IL-17A and IL-17F, so it was partnered with the German Merck, which actually licensed this technology out to MoonLake and is one of the investors in its Series A, speaking with their CEO, Jorge Santos de Silva. He was saying that some progress in IL-17 research over the last five years has kind of identified some ways that this asset could really move forward treatment for autoimmune disorders of the joints and skin. It looks like IL-17A and F are really the two most pro-inflammatory cytokines of that family. There's other IL-17 isoforms that have other functions that you might not want to target. But that they're also that there's an advantage when you target IL17F in addition to just IL17A, which is what Cosentix does. For example, they think they have some interesting proof of concept data in psoriasis, but they're really moving forward in smaller indications that they think could really benefit from targeting this biology, including ankylosing spondylitis. And they think that the nanobody modality here will be an advantage in part because it's a smaller molecule, so it can penetrate deeper into the joints and skin and really target the affected biology.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Karen. All these stories are up on our website that we talked about. Steve's story on Janet Woodcock's legacy is in front of the paywall. You can go to our website, search for Janet Woodcock, and up it will come. There's also a link in our Twitter feed. Coming up on biocentury.com, we'll have a story by Paul on changes in Marathi's C-suite. We'll have my piece on what patients want in ALS, and we'll also feature the latest crop of emerging company profiles. Well, thank you, Paul, Karen, and Steve. Thank you. All of Biocentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcast. The group is gearing up for its first live concert in some time. If you check out their website, you'll be able to see all the details. They're quite excited about that. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.